Turn with me to Matthew 5, 38. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. And I think the implications are going to stretch further and perhaps be a little sharp. Um, Before we get into the actual passage, I want to address something that comes up almost every time we talk about the law in questions after uh, after we look at a text, and that is um, questions about replacing. Um, there There are some words, replace or supersede or overturn. These words are used uh, interchangeably among uh, the students of Matthew to try and uh, explain how Jesus handles the law, okay? But there are also three words which make people pretty uncomfortable, okay? Why why do those words replace or overturn or supersede? Why, Why do those words make us uncomfortable? Well, simply... Because the law is God's word, right? It is a reflection of his character and his wisdom and his righteousness. In fact, the scriptures are clear that this is the case. I'm going to read to you from Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You know, and Jesus believes that. Jesus is a champion of the divine origin of the law. Jesus is the fiercest defender of God's word. Jesus loves the law. And Jesus was sent to fulfill the law. Yet Jesus consistently overturns aspects of the law. Okay, now how can both of those two things be true at the same time? In order to answer that question, I want to reflect on two purposes of the law. Okay, I think the law has more than two purposes, but these are two chief purposes of the law. First, the law reflects the righteousness and the wisdom and the character of God. It is a reflection of God's heart. But also, the law illuminates and restrains the dark hearts of men. And these two dynamics are at play all the time. Illuminating the heart of God, the righteous heart of God, and restraining the dark heart of men. The law is doing both of these things. The law is a righteous call and a binding restraint, okay? At the same time, a righteous call and a binding restraint. And this is all over Jesus' teaching. You can see it everywhere. In fact, we spent a lot of time dealing with this in Matthew 19 last month. The Pharisees say, is it lawful to divorce my wife? And Jesus says, no. And the Pharisees say, well, why did Moses give us permission? He said, well, that was a concession because of your hard hearts. Well, what did he just do? He said, he said well, yeah, that's in the law. There's some acknowledgement that you will divorce your wives, but that's in there because you have dark, hard hearts and you will sin. 
And the law is there to restrain your sin. But then he says these words, from the beginning it was not so. And what reference does he have in that passage? He points to the creation narrative where God made men and women and and God made them to come together in marriage. He said, so don't separate what God joined together. I don't think it's an accident that he points to a passage before sin enters the world. Okay? As Jesus sees that the righteous call of the law is obscured on some level by the binding restraint of the law, which is only necessary because of sin. I'm going to read that one more time. Jesus sees that the righteous call of the law can be obscured by the binding restraint of the law, which is only necessary because of sin. So what does Jesus do? Jesus lays down his life to fulfill the righteous call of the law in order that the binding restraint of the law would be rendered obsolete for his people. All right? Jesus laying down his life and fulfilling the law means that for his people, the binding restraint of the law, the restraint that assumes that these people are wicked and they're going to want to turn away from God at every moment, that binding restraint is, is rendered obsolete in the new covenant. I'm going to read you the prophetic uh, anticipation of this reality. This is, I, I, I read of the new covenant in Jeremiah last week. I'm going to read of the new covenant in Ezekiel this week. Listen. I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is God speaking to his people. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and what will happen then? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws. So Christ's work to redeem his people and to cleanse his people results in his people receiving a new heart and a new spirit. And with that new heart and and that new spirit, they will not only be able to walk with God and to obey the law and to follow the statutes of the law, but they will want to do it, right? It is God who works in you to will and to work according to his purposes. That's the Spirit's work in the heart of the New Covenant community. Okay, so when he fulfills the law, Jesus gives new hearts to his people. Hearts that freely walk in God's righteous way. Amen. That's the vision. That's the vision. Now with that sort of heart, you don't need the binding restraint of the law anymore. So when Jesus calls his people to do the law, he directs their attention to the righteous call of the law and he dismisses the binding restraint altogether. All right? Because new hearts don't need to be bound. That's what we that's what we mean. That's what we're referring to when we say replace. We're not saying God's saying we're not saying that Jesus is saying the law doesn't have any room in your life anymore. We're saying that that Jesus says you can actually do the law now. You can actually fulfill the law. All the righteous vision of the law can be embodied in your faithfulness and your love and your following after Jesus. And that means that some aspects of the law you don't even need to worry about anymore. Right? Does that make sense? And that's what's happening in our passage today. That's what's happening in our passage today. And let's read it. This is Matthew 5, 38 through 42. You have heard it was said, 
an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay? Let's read it one more time. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage, and we're going to have to deal with some implications of this passage that I think are going to be sharp um, and, and, and that are going to refine us and, and encourage us to do what Jesus did, namely to lay, out, lay aside his rights and to die on behalf of others. All right? So the, the supreme act of love. But before we get there, let's look at the context. Let's look at the context. I think that there are two passages... Uh, more than two, but we're going to look at two passages that sort of lie behind this command. Um, the first, I think, is Leviticus 19, verse 18. I think this is the righteous call of the law in this regard. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you remember the passage? It's often talked about in Sunday school. It's often talked about in, in discipleship. Um, the two central commands, the, 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 the summary of the law that Jesus gives. He's asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's where this is coming from. Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. It is given in the context of when your, neighbor, when your neighbor does evil to you, you respond with mercy. That's how you love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, so I think that's kind of living in the background of this passage. Let me read uh, the, the passage that Jesus quotes. Um, this is Leviticus 24. This is the, the, the second in a, in a series of three uh, instances of eye for eye vocabulary in the law, right? So this is in Leviticus. One's in Exodus and one is in Deuteronomy. Um, if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given him. Now this is a broad command um, in the first instance of this language, you have uh, the context of, of two people getting into a fight, and in the mix, someone who is an innocent is hurt, and, and the aggressor of that fight has then ha has to pay whatever injury he gave to this innocent himself, right? That's the first context. And the last context in Deuteronomy is when somebody is a malicious wit witness in a court, Somebody is, is lying to, to get uh, another person falsely accused 
and condemned for an action. When it is discovered that he is lying, whatever he wanted his buddy to get, he gets that, right? So if you're arguing that, that your buddy is an idolater and the, and the, and the force of idolatry, the, the consequence of idolatry in ancient Israel is death, right? If, if you're lying about your buddy being in idolatry and it is found out the consequence for what you were saying he was doing falls on your head. In every case, the dynamic at play is um, when you act evil, in an evil way against your neighbor, um, you, get, uh, you get retribution uh, accordingly. All right? that's, that's the context all throughout the law. Now Jesus points at this and he says, no more for you. No more for you. Now, before we actually get into what he means, what I want to do is I want to clarify by way of this passage that he's referring to a personal application of this and not a, a federal or, or civil or, or judicial application of this. And here's, here's how I know that. Listen, he says, I say to you, all right, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, all right? What he doesn't say is, I say to the judges and the governments and the bearers of the sword, do not resist one who is evil. All right, so you need to create a categorical distinction here between this uh, justice dynamic that plays out federally and that plays out judiciously from this justice dynamic, which is a tool people use to get retribution for wrongs done to them. All right, we're going to draw near to that, but um, okay, so... The righteous call of the law in the wake of evil, I'm getting this from Leviticus 19, is to adopt the character of God. God introduces himself very early in the law to Moses, and he says, um, I am merciful and gracious, I am slow to anger, and I am abounding in steadfast love. That character is, is embodied in the righteous call of the law. We are required as God's people to adopt His characteristics. And His primary characteristics are mercy and grace and steadfast love and slowness to anger. All right, now that's going to hurt for those of us who are angry all the time. Um, but we are called to adopt the characteristics of God. Um, however, the law recognizes that men will inevitably seek vengeance. It is part of the framework of the law that, yes, there's an ideal, the righteous call of God to his people, but the law accounts for the wicked actions of men, and the law accounts for the vindictiveness of men. Men will inevitably seek vengeance. And so this law for the individual Israelite is a binding restraint. It limits how someone can seek retribution. It limits how and in what ways what you see happening prior to the, issue of the, the issuance of the law and sometimes afterwards, because men are wicked, is that a, an offense, a slight offense, is, 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 uh, is, is um, re, the response to a slight offense is vindictive, violent retribution, right? And you get this cycle of violence that just gets bigger and bigger because men don't respond justly to offense. They respond vindictively and violently to offense. So this limits, on some level, how they can and in what ways they can respond to offense. Okay. 
Now, Jesus looks at that restraint. And he says, you don't need that restraint any longer. Why? Because you're no longer considering retribution for the evil actions against you. Right? You're no longer even, even considering that. You've had a paradigm shift. If you are in Christ, if you have a new heart, your paradigm has shifted from eye for an eye to surrendering your rights. Okay? In Christ, you no longer think about how to get retribution for evil done to you. You think about how to surrender your rights in a generous display of mercy. That's the paradigm here. Now, Jesus here gives four examples of what he means and how to apply it. And I don't think it's an accident that these four examples touch on fundamental human rights. Life, the right to life, the right to security, the, light, the right to liberty, the right to property. These are fundamental. Perhaps not a people in the world believes so fundamentally in these rights as Americans. I think I knew about these rights before I knew about uh, most of the states in the Union. That's how fundamental it was. From elementary school, we are talking about our rights and the seed of our nation being a defense of our rights. This is, is kind of who we are. And the problem is, Jesus looks at situations where an evil person compromises your basic fundamental human rights, and he says, don't resist that guy. All right. More on that later. In every situation here, and I'm talking in the context of ancient Israel, in every situation there is a legal structure that gives the victim of these actions legal recourse or the right to refuse. All right? So Jesus is not randomly pulling out evil actions and saying, well, like here, like here, like here. He's actually, he's actually addressing his context and he is looking at people and situations where you would and ought to, on some sense, go seek retribution through the court system. And then he's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. That is not who we are anymore. All right. What, do I, what, what does that mean? Let's look at them each individually. Um, Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, this is not uh, a vaguely uh, physical you know, altercation. This is actually a, a reference to a, a social disgrace that is kind of for, formalized in this context. We used to, as Western civilization, have something very similar. Um, uh, you've probably seen it in movies. Uh, you know, and we, let, we make fun of it now because it's a little silly. But um, there, there are situations where uh, you, would, you would take out your glove Right? You take out your white leather glove and you would right? slap somebody with the glove across the face. Right? And that, that, was like, that was like a social disgrace and typically it was to prompt a duel. Right? You see this in, uh, in Europe until 19th century. Uh, uh, some of our American forefathers died this way. They were like, okay, duel. Let's, let's duel it out, which seems crazy, but it happened. Um, the strike here is referring to um, 
a, a, a backhand, right, right backhanded blow. And that right backhanded blow was a challenge of someone's honor. It was the most uh, uh, expressive disgrace that somebody had immediate access to in an altercation. And it was so commonly used that there were legal uh, there, were legal, there was legal recourse for anybody who was sh- struck that way. This goes beyond just when somebody hurts you, you, sh- you should, there should be retribution and they're going to be hurt in the same way. This is actually, this is actually a, a social and, and honor-influencing category that was taken so seriously that courts had rules that said, if you do this, you must pay your brother X dollars or X whatever, drachma, or I can't. Yeah, I probably should have prepared more for whatever the currency was at the time. Um, so, Christ looks at a situation that happens, and he looks at a situation where the expectation of the victim would be, all right, take that guy to court. That's what happens. You now take that guy to court. All right, so that's the first instance. Second instance, he says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, if you've studied the word, you hear cloak, and it, and it sends signals. Because throughout the law, the cloak is a fundamental, inalienable possession. You can't take that. In fact, if you take it and you keep it overnight, there are real heavy consequences for you. All right, let me back up and explain. Uh, people didn't dress like we do. Uh, they probably make fun of, frankly, how we dress. Uh, there is no real anymore explanation for collar shirts. This, this, this is a nonsensical item that is just a part of our uh, wardrobe. And they had a completely different wardrobe. I'm going to explain to you what the average guy wore. Uh, you had a loincloth. We don't need to get into that. Pretty straightforward. Um, and then a tunic. All right, the tunic or shirt was, you know, like a shirt uh, that went as your first layer of clothing, and it covered you. And then you had the cloak. The cloak was an outer garment. It was thicker, and it was expensive. Part of the reason the cloak was so valuable is even the poorest of the poor could, if they had no, no shelter, if they were living on the street, they could cover themselves at night with that cloak and it would be a blanket, which is part of the reason why the law protects the cloak so, so, so uh, strictly, right? Because, because to take a cloak from someone is to remove their right to shelter, their right to security, right? They are, at, even if they are despicable, even if they've wronged you, they are a human being bearing the image of God and we do not take their fundamental access to, to, to a, a night's rest. Okay. Now this is why it is so radical for Jesus to say, if someone sues you and they win and you owe them your shirt, which is your, your basic garment, give them your cloak as well. There is no more Jewish way to say Surrender your rights altogether. Somebody wants to take something from you, you give it to them and you give them even more, even unto your distress, even unto your insecurity. Right? 
That's just the second example. Keep reading. Um, If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, this is a reference to Roman occupation. I want to be careful here because we do, on some level, admire aspects of Rome. Rome facilitated a lot of good things, uh, like um, highways. And I'm really stretching here. I have a hard time reading Rome as anything other than a tyrannical and oppressive force of, of sheer uh, violence against the world. Um, however, aspects of the Roman government have actually, in the long term, helped keep people safe. We have inherited these, in some level, uh, in our own human, or our own American government. Um, however, what you need to know about Rome is that Rome was a single state that decided by sheer force of will and by demonstration of power to take over the world. And the way they did it was they went to places and they killed very, very many people. And the remaining people, they said, you don't have any rights according to our government or very few rights according to our government. You are now a territory, which means you need to pay us regular money. We're going to put governments over you and you're going to get, we're going to take taxes from you and we're going to limit your rights. And here's what I mean. Throughout the Roman territories, we're talking a significant portion of the globe, at least the known world at the time, uh, Roman soldiers were given opportunity at any point to look at anyone and say, I'm tired, carry my stuff. I'm tired, carry my stuff. There was a limit, though. You couldn't ask a random guy to carry your stuff for more than a mile. Are you starting to see what Jesus is asking of his people? This is, by the way, this is, this is Israel. These are the Jews he's talking about. They, they have been placed in the promised land. There is no more uh, diabolical and oppressive figure in the lives of Jews than the Roman government. The Roman government is evil. They are oppressing us. And there is a seed of what we would now call terrorists that are, that are, that are randomly and, and uh, with all social approval walking into the streets of Jerusalem and stabbing Roman officials. They're called the Zealots. And one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot. And so, so Simon was sitting before Jesus on the mount, listening to, hey, you know how you used to just randomly stab Roman officials? Well, the next time a Roman soldier throws his stuff on the ground and says, pick it up and walk with me a mile, I want you to go too. It's hard to communicate the gravity of this request for the oppressed Jewish people in Palestine. It's, it's hard. It's almost impossible. We have no reference. All right. And then if that weren't a broad enough call to self-sacrifice, listen to his words. He says, 
Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who borrows, who would borrow from you. Okay. There's a lot of ink spilt trying to determine who he's talking about and what are the limitations on this passage. It's hard to land on limitations of this passage because Christ uses vague language on purpose. Anyone, anyone who begs, anyone who would borrow from you. Now the reason this has such force, the reason this makes you reconsider every decision you made in the last three weeks when you're turning left at an intersection is because there has never not been a moment where, where people who were, who were um, broken and lost and contributing relatively little to the social environment were begging for money. And there's never been a neighborhood where you didn't have a neighbor asking to borrow something, and you know that guy's not going to give it back. Right? So if these three sections... Uh, these three calls to, to respond to physical violence with grace and mercy and to respond to, to government oppression with grace and mercy and to respond uh, uh, with, with lawsuits with grace and mercy. If that weren't broad enough, Christ addresses where you are at right now every single day and he says, give yourself up for them. Okay. So the rights of life, the rights of security, the rights of liberty, and the rights of private property, Christ says, surrender them. Lay them down. These are real rights. These are real rights. I am not suggesting that you don't have the right of private property. Some people go there. They are wrong. The the law assumes private property. It is interwoven in the the legal code of Israel. That that Yes, there are things that you own. They don't belong to the whole community. Forget socialism. It's a lie. Okay? It's a lie. Communism, socialism... It starts from the wrong foundation. And it's a lie. Your stuff doesn't belong to everybody. That's not what makes Christian communities unique for their generosity. Their generosity makes them unique. Now, for those of you saying amen, just remember what I just said there because probably I'm going to offend you at some point in the future. Just like walk away with not sheer rage. (laughs) All right. Notice that Christ's call is not merely to uh, non-resistance. Christ's call is not merely to lay down your rights. Christ says, offer your other cheek too. He says, let him have your cloak. He says, walk another mile with that guy. He says, give to anyone who asks, right? It's not merely that you're surrendering and you're not resisting the evil person. You're, you're leveraging the opportunity to, distri- to display generous mercy. Christ's response to evil isn't merely non-resistance. 
Praise God. It is the heart and hope of the gospel that Christ doesn't merely respond to evil with non-resistance. He, is, he responds to evil with generous mercy. It's why you, if you are in Christ, are adopted in love and you've been promised an inheritance in a coming kingdom. So that's Christ's response to evil. And He demands nothing less of His people. Christ demands nothing less of His people than surrender and generous mercy. All right, a few notes and then we'll get into application. First, Jesus does not hesitate to call these things evil. They are evil. Violence against you is evil. When people are violent against you or suing you inappropriately, when people... People... When governments, when our government is oppressing you, it's okay to call that evil. It's okay. Christ does it too. He said, don't resist the evil person. He just doesn't say, don't resist people. He says, don't resist the evil people. And then he says, here are four ways that people can be evil to you. And I'm telling you not to resist them. It's okay to call evil things evil. This is another misstep that our culture has taken. Because we're called to generosity, because we're called to love, because we're called to charity, some people believe that we shouldn't call bad things bad. That is wrong. The Bible never hesitates to call sin, sin, and you shouldn't either. Now how you respond to that sin, that's the measure of your discipleship. All right. Uh, Okay, listen, I know, I get it. Uh, I, th- I think every commentary I read spent time trying to qualify some of this. I think I read three times. If you were to give to anyone who asks of you, you would eventually run out of money. Okay, now listen. Maybe that's true. I, I doubt it's true, but maybe it's true. Um, But unqualified, this call is to radical self-sacrifice. Maybe don't mess with that. Maybe don't mess with it. What what if God owned all the cattle on the hill? What if God was able to give to you far more abundantly than you gave to other people? Right? So, like, just take a little while to let it soak in before you start to give yourself categories where you don't have to apply these things. All right, now, even as I say that, let me give one caveat. Peter is begged for coin, and instead he gives gospel healing. All right, so you, you got an empty pocketbook, you got an empty bank account, and you, you're turning left and somebody's like, Give me money. Pull over and talk to them about the gospel and offer them hope and love them as a human being. Maybe that's how you give. I'm not going to say what this means is give real cash every time somebody asks for real cash. Maybe it does. Probably, I'm guessing, the Spirit will tell you when that's the case. Um, But stop... Stop trying to qualify these things. Let's just not for a little while. Let's pretend like Christ 
calls us to radical expressions of self-sacrifice because Christ himself is a radical expression of self-sacrifice. Nobody gave more than he did. And they never will. Step down for glory, king of the universe. And he took our sin on his shoulders, right? If that's the measure of self-sacrifice we're called to, then maybe don't spend a lot of time trying to caveat how and when you should or should not give to somebody who asks. Okay, okay. This is something that dawned on me this week. It may, may be completely unnecessary to you. Um, may not even make sense to you. I have always believed and been taught that when Christians show mercy and grace, it is an act of reciprocation. Meaning, God showed me mercy, so I will show you mercy. And that's all throughout the New Testament. But I want you to notice here that in this passage, the, the call to mercy and grace and self-sacrifice isn't reciprocation, it's emulation. Listen, I'm going to read you two verses further. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The heart and hope of the law, the call to righteousness is to be like God, sons and daughters of God. And who is God? He's rich in mercy and rich in grace and slow to be angry and pouring out steadfast love. Okay, so let's be like him. Be like him. All right. Finally, Jesus is calling his people to respond to evil men like God does. That's the next turn in this sermon. We're going to deal with this next time. We are to respond to evil men and women with patience and mercy and love. Patience and mercy and love. And the implications of responding to wicked acts in patience and mercy and love are life-changing. I'm not going to exhaustively apply this to you this morning. I'm going to recommend a few fronts where you might see how you're not applying it Take it for what it's worth. What I will pray is that the Spirit will fall heavy on you this week and that you will think carefully about how you respond to wicked deeds and whether or not it is self-sacrificial and loving, whether or not it's fulfilling your call. All right. Let's talk about applying it. Now, before you read the next slide, just know that it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but also I mean it a little bit. And I'm sorry. Rip that come and take it sticker off your pickup. Okay? Okay, listen. Okay, listen, guys. You remember I just like, I just like, you know, mocked Marxism and communism and socialism. I'm on board. Same team. Same team. But if your response to evil acts of an oppressive government don't look like well, let me go another mile with you, brother. Could your identity as a Texan or your identity as an American or, dare I say, your identity as a gun owner outrank your identity as a Christ follower? To quote Ron Weasley, you really need to sort out your priorities. 
<laughs> all right. That's all I'm going to say about that. Fight with me later. I expect a few conversations. It's fine. The other side of this. When an oppressive government makes unjust demands, Jesus says to display generous mercy. This has to play some role in your politics. I don't know what that role is. Probably it's going to govern how you respond to certain actions of our Senate or, or the House or the executive branch or the judicial system. You have to figure out how your call to walk two miles relates to your oppressive government's demands on your money and your time. Okay? I don't know. I don't know how it applies, but I think it does. I'm just going to throw that out there and let it just sit there in the stew. Okay. I've already said this. I want to repeat it. Stop qualifying the unqualified demands to give to those who beg. Now, I've already told you, that may not necessarily look like giving money. We talk a big game about God sovereignly orchestrating every moment. Right? Now, if we believe those words, then, then we believe that when somebody walks up to you, a human being who will live forever, one direction or another, that is an opportunity. I don't know what to do with it. Just to give you some background, I, I used to live downtown. I intentionally didn't carry cash because I made some decisions about what my, my, my uh, homeless neighbors were doing. I, I watched what they were doing with cash. So instead, we gave, like, food. Like, we gave time. We gave blankets. We, sp we spoke to them. We talked to them about the gospel. Right? So it doesn't have to look like cash. But don't qualify it. Don't qualify it anymore. I used to get angry when I saw 18, 19-year-old men begging at an intersection. Why don't you just go get a job? You know what happens? Foster care happens. We, we had to study to prepare for foster care five years ago. And what we learned is that people who are not adopted and age out of the system, 20% of those 18-year-olds are immediately homeless. So when you find yourself getting angry or responding with, ugh, remember who you were when Christ met you in your evil. Remember who you were when Christ met you in your dependency. Be like your Father who reigns on the just and the unjust. Amen? All right. Finally, um, call retribution what it is. It is silly to assume that you don't foster at least some small space in your life for personal retribution. You do. It is the way of the world. You grew up. It's the language of your people. When somebody offends you, sometimes you stick that in your pocket 
And then you find a way. Right? Watch for it. See what you do the next time somebody cuts you off and slams on their brakes in a, in a, in, on, a, on a highway. See how you respond to them. See what you do the next time somebody throws you under a bus in a meeting. How do you respond to that guy? What is, how does that change the way you relate to them? Are you, are you affecting retribution? Christ says no more. And you know I'm always going to talk about social media. I think social media, Facebook could be called the temple of retribution. It, could, it would be a fairly accurate name for Facebook, the, the temple of retribution, because that's where we go to throw spite on people. That's where we, grow, that's where we go to, to claim that this, this guy said this, he must not even be a believer, or what a wicked person, can't wait for that person to burn in hell. What is that? Is that going two miles? Now, like I said, you call evil evil. It's part of what we do. But you just make sure that your response to evil is generous and merciful and loving and not vindictive. Okay? All right. All right. Now that we have seen in the many ways we have not so radically sacrificed our lives in the way that Christ has called us to, let's go to the table and celebrate the sweet work he did to redeem us despite our wicked ways and, uh, and to, to demonstrate how we were to respond to the, to the world. Okay. Brett?